This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society podcast, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jake. Today, we'll be talking with Elizabeth Ramirez about her new book, Beyond Data. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I'm a senior research associate at Oxford University's Institute for Ethics and Artificial Intelligence. I'm also a senior fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation. And I'm the founder and CEO of Hacky Lawyer, which is a consultancy focused on law and technology policy. Um, I'm a U.S. qualified data protection and privacy lawyer with vast cross-border experience. I practice law on three continents. Um, and at present, the bulk of my academic and applied work focuses on the ethical and human rights implications of artificial intelligence and machine learning, as well as extended reality technologies. Wow, that's quite a lot of things. <laughs> Could you tell us how you came to write this book? Yeah, so uh, for anyone who has a copy of the book already or has seen it or has uh, read it, um, I tell a little bit about the story uh, in the preface to my book, um, which is that I had a classmate in university or in college for Americans listening um, by the name of Mark Zuckerberg um, and was very near to the origins of Facebook. Um, And as a data protection and privacy lawyer who's been Uh, working in the space for well over a decade, um, I recently started to connect my experience in university um, with the origins of Facebook to the sort of uh, what I perceive as deficiencies in respect of data protection and privacy frameworks and their limitations in addressing the types of harms, um, the more dignity-based harms that I felt were at stake um, in terms of the types of technologies that we see proliferating today. Sure. That's all very interesting. I was wondering if we could start at the very beginning of all this. For some of our listeners who may not know, what is data? Yeah. I mean, it is the big question, right? And I think that um, people have been trying to answer this question (laughs) for time immemorial. And it's been an extremely 
elusive concept, really hard to pin down. Um, so today people are used to hearing lots of metaphors about data. So we talk about data as a new oil and data as air and data as currency and data as, you know, a toxic substance. Um, and it's really popular to try and use these sort of metaphors to capture the essence of something that, as I, I noted, has historically been um, very slippery. And it's interesting that the, the, the etymology, actually, of the term, um, it, it comes from a sort of uh, theological, philosophical con uh, context. And so historically, the term came out of um, theologians using it to mean things sort of stipulated for the sake of conversation, things given, things taken for granted. So not based on any kind of evidence um, or any kind of scientific exploration or extraction. And interestingly, over time, it would come to uh, be more associated with maths and sciences and have to do more with the sort of objective nature of truth. Um, and only in very recent times does data come to be associated with technology, specifically digital technologies, um, in the sense of uh, literally digital data, you know, binary zeros and ones. Um, and that is when the first sort of early national data protection laws uh, were coming on the scene around the time that personal computers and the sort of computing revolution was happening. So it's um, historically and presently a very slippery term. And as I argue in my book, uh, as a result, a terrible sort of foundation for attempting to govern the, the use of these technologies. What I found so interesting in your book, among many things, was this history you trace of data protection laws, which you briefly mentioned in your response there. I was wondering if you could take us through that. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a big history. Um, so let's see, I'll try and give you the whistle stop tour. Um, I think what's interesting is that data protection laws are derived from and emerge from a the body of sort of international human rights law. So, you know, decades before this notion of digital data and decades before the first computerized databases and personal computers um, in the wake of World War II, you know, we have this sort of universal declaration of human rights which forms the sort of foundation of subsequent international human rights uh, treaties and international human rights law. And in that body of law, we have this notion of privacy. And privacy today and the way that we uh, think about it and, and speak about it in the context of digital technologies is much different from the sort of human rights genesis of privacy. So in the human rights framework, it was this very broad uh, fundamental right, this broad conceptualization that had to do with the sort of physical boundedness of a person, these, these boundaries around ourselves, our bodies, our homes, our families, our private lives. Um, and what was interesting when sort of computers and particularly personal computers in the home came on the scene is that they penetrated these sort of physical boundaries and really challenged this notion of privacy from a human rights standpoint. And so there was this sort of panic and scramble of, how do we protect something that we can, uh, that we've all experienced, that we all perceive to be really fundamental to the protection of human rights, but in a way that responds to this new technological reality where these tools and devices are now literally inside of our homes. And so it was in, in that context that the first, again, early sort of national data protection laws began to emerge and specifically refer to this notion of data and specifically refer to databases 
and digital databases in particular. Um, and, and that is the very start of what now, 50 years later, has manifested into a very different notion of privacy, one that is far more narrow, one that is far more technocratic, and one that I would argue is far less protective than the sort of original notion derived from something like privacy under human rights law. You mentioned that it's more narrow and technocratic. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, there are a couple of layers to this, again, uh, going, obviously go into great detail in my book. But when we think about privacy in the context of our digital technologies today, I think most people think about uh, data rights, right? So they think about rights to access, uh, modify, delete, uh, do various things to personal data that's collected about us, uh, largely by private corporations. And that, again, um, is true and relevant to privacy in the sense that data obviously reveals a lot of things about us and plays a role in um, you know, how we express ourselves, how we interact with others, how we sort of present ourselves to the world, and therefore um, relates to this sort of um, this boundedness, this bo- these boundaries that I was referring to earlier. However, it's a very sort of um, superficial uh, application of that principle in the sense that, you know, you can, you can do all these things to data. So for example, I can go, you know, to whatever company and request uh, access to my data, and I might see their inaccuracies, and I might want to amend them, I might even ask them to, to delete, you know, some of the data. However, it doesn't actually um, protect the interests that something like a broad notion of human, of human rights privacy wants to protect, because it's, um, it, 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 we live in such a complex digital ecosystem, a complex technological ecosystem now that that data has already been, you know, <laughs> uh, used and integrated and harvested and combined. And it's part of this complex ecosystem, this complex supply chain um, of digital tools and technologies and processes and data where it's sort of, um, you know, you can't isolate any particular data point or anyone's particular information in any meaningful way that's going to let them um, control the outcome of decisions about them or, you know, control the direction of their lives and, and prevent things like manipulation or harassment or discrimination or targeting or anything like that. And so um, to reduce it to sort of what's done to data points about us is a much narrower notion than thinking about it as protecting these sort of spheres of ourselves, these spheres of our identity and our private lives and our, and our personal lives. Um, technocratic, by technocratic, I mean, similarly, once you start just thinking about this in terms of data, um, you start thinking about protecting and securing and keeping that data private and confidential, which means we're reducing this to things like database management, to data security, to info, you know, to information security, to infosec, to these technical concepts and principles, and this becomes a technical exercise. So it's a, um, it loses that sort of social, political, economic, broader context in which we actually live our lives, and it loses that broader context in which this data has any relevance or meaning. And so it sort of collapses this broad protective notion into something that's actually quite superficial. And again, as I argue in the book, why I don't think that our legal frameworks have been all that effective in protecting us. 
Thank you. Um, so building on that a little bit, in your book, you mentioned that companies have weaponized the singular, or, or a singular obsession with data. Uh, could you explain to our audience what you mean by that? Yeah, so um, exactly. I think the biggest example, the most prominent example of this, in my view, are uh, privacy preserving or privacy enhancing technologies, pets, people know them as sometimes. Um, when you reduce privacy to a technic- technocratic concept about protecting, securing data and data points and databases, what you end up with is sort of um, an unsustainable race to keep up with new and emerging technologies for managing that data. And so companies will introduce what they call privacy preserving or privacy enhancing techniques or technologies or methods and um, sort of call it a day, right? The job is done. We've secured, we've protected this data. But in reality, it doesn't change anything about how that data is being used. It doesn't change anything about the impact of how that use uh, impacts our lives. So for example, um, you know, there are a lot of technologies now, or a lot of companies that will use um, what they call like confidential uh, computing, which is effectively going into a cloud-based database and being able to run, you know, sort of certain processes on, on data or database without necessarily accessing the underlying data. And so is that more privacy preserving? Um, From a technocratic standpoint, yes, right? They're not accessing the underlying data. Is that promoting the same values that a human right to privacy seeks to protect? Not necessarily, because often they're still able to use the data for similar purposes. They're still able to um, put that into a process to make a determination about, I don't know, let's say credit scoring or hiring or, um, you know, something for law enforcement or national security purposes. And so the outcome is still that we now have to mold ourselves and live our lives in a certain way where we suffer the same consequences as a result of that those data processing activities and that decision-making based upon it. Um, and sure, that's great. The data has been protected, but where does that leave us? And so one of the things that I argue in my book is that this isn't just that privacy has been narrowed, but it's the fact that um, by focusing on data and in turn, sort of narrowing the field of human rights law to just privacy and a very impoverished notion of that, we've abandoned this entire corpus of human rights, right? 30 plus sort of core human rights um, that exist that are relevant in the digital, in the context of these technologies um, and, and, and have developed this sort of uh, really for back, lack of a better term, and I'm really still trying to work at a better term, this kind of data blindness, right? Where we see all technology governance issues in terms of data first and is the data protected? Is the data secure? Is the data confidential? And in my view, that those are the wrong questions to be asking because it's not about the data. It's about people. It's about us. It's about humans. It's about our interests and what's happening and our ability to sort of control our own identities and personalities and lives and protect our dignity. Um, and that may be more than you bargained for in that question. No, that was actually perfect. I'm actually really glad that you mentioned people there at the end of that, because you have a really excellent section near the end of the book talking about the datafication of life and why this all matters so much now and into the future. Um, And I was wondering if you could tell us a little more about that. Exactly. Yeah. So I think really where the limits of our existing data protection and in air quotes, privacy frameworks come into play is they intervene in this process they sort of introduce governance at a point where it's already too late. So for example, think of, you know, all of the many data breaches, right? There are just too many to keep track of and too many to point to, but 
we just live in a constant uh, sea of data breaches left and right. And, you know, one is sort of discovered and there's, there's a public uproar and then perhaps there's some kind of remedial action taken. And all of those interventions are sort of, you know, too little, too late. Um, really, the only meaningful intervention is to think about, you know, what, what can be and what should be, or sometimes both, um, turned into data points that are treated as true, as quantifiable, as, um, as sort of, you know, raw materials for the types of decision, impactful decision-making uh, that directly impact people. So what I talk about in my book are sort of two forms of, two challenges on datafication. So one is sort of, we take for given today that everything can be turned into data, right? So now we see on the horizon all of these sort of, you know, neurotechnologies, brain computing and brain machine interfaces that are, you know, allegedly reading our brain waves um, and inferring things about our mental states and our emotional states. Um, there are what I call, you know, there are real limits on that in the sense that many of these technologies that purport to be doing this are in fact not doing that. And there are, you know, there's very deep research on the fact that um, neural pathways and brain states and things like that don't necessarily map to what's actually happening to how the mind works, to how we think, to how we feel. So there's sort of imperfect correlates that are be being treated or inferences being drawn that are just not true and not even scientifically possible. However, we treat them as if they're true or as if they're objective and, and make decisions on the basis of that, make consequential decisions with legal, economic, commercial implications. And that's very dangerous, right? So there's, there's sort of that um, practical problem. And then there's the sort of bigger philosophical problem around where do we draw the line around what becomes part of the market? What becomes a commodity? What becomes subject to a commercial exchange or trade? And in my view, you know, I don't want to live in a society where my entire personhood, my entire human experience is commodified um, and be enters that marketplace. And so I talk about the sort of need for, you know, moral limits on markets and in turn, normative limits on markets and in turn, legal limits on datafication and what becomes subject to this kind of marketplace. And I think only by going up the chain and by intervening earlier in the process, um, will we have any meaningful protections vis-a-vis -vis our data. That makes a lot of sense. So if we go all the way up the chain, would this be sort of superseding current data protection laws? We create more uh, data protection laws that are focused more on human rights, as you advocate in this book, than just bits and ones and zeros? Yeah, I mean, so I think, you know, what I call for, because of course, the book isn't just a critique of existing legal frameworks, right? I wanted to put forward a solution. But ironically, I think in, in proposing a solution, you know, I, I have a, ch a chapter about going back to the future. And in the sense that I actually think we need to return to sort of fundamental uh, principles, right, and to existing bodies of law, including human rights law, um, which in my view, have been entirely under leveraged in this space. So one of the things that I talk about in the book is that if you look at, let's say, the discourse around social media companies, which tend to be very prominent in the conversation around technology governance, even though that may not be fair or accurate because in reality, there are many sort of um, important 
uh, cross-border foundational technologies that are uh, not as sort of on the surface or not, you know, household names. Nevertheless, let's look at the context of social media just because it's familiar to people. You know, there's a lot of talk about human rights and digital rights or human rights and and data rights or human rights. and, And that's a lot of the sort of rhetoric. But then when you actually dig deeper, really the only human rights that anyone ever talks about in that context are privacy and free expression. And those are important. They're really important. They're crucial. But there are many more rights implicated in the context of social media technologies than just those two rights. My thesis is that the reason that we're so reductive, that we're only focusing on those two rights, is because we think about this in terms of data and information. And so if you think about this in terms of data and information, then it would make sense that freedom of expression and and privacy and this narrow conceptualization of it come to dominate the conversation. But if you think about this more broadly in the context of human rights, and not just individual civil and political rights like privacy, but these more collective economic, social, cultural rights, there are huge implications, right? So there are implications around, you know, the right to benefit from scientific progress, um, rights to participate in the culture, uh, rights to sort of, um, you know, economic rights and um, labor protections and um, freedom of uh, thought and association. I mean, there's so many, really every, potentially every human right on the, you know, in existence is relevant and we don't apply them and we don't even really talk about them. And I think that that's a, a tremendous loss um, and, a, and a tremendous waste of resources and energy, you know, because we're always trying to come up with new laws and regulations. And we always hear tech companies saying we need new laws and regulations. And in my view, that's a strategy designed to sort of defer and deflect and delay, right? And to kick the can down the road and to say, you know, we don't have laws that apply. When in reality, that's just not true. Um, and there's so much more potential, sort of untapped potential in our existing human rights frameworks. Well, that is really interesting stuff. Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I really enjoyed it. Take care. Thanks, Jake. Appreciate it. Take care. More information about Beyond Data can be found at MIT Press.